This week's episode of Amateur Hour is going to be a little bit different, Darren. And I think ultimately it is so special that we have the opportunity to collaborate with the College Baseball Hall of Fame. So for the last two months, I've been working with Mike Gustafson. He's the president and CEO at the College Baseball Foundation. And this is the second year they've asked me to host and produce the virtual night of champions. So this 2021 Hall of Fame class not able to have their induction ceremony in person, not able to have their night of champions in person. So the foundation wanted everybody to feel just as special. So we put together the night of champions. We've been working tirelessly. Like this is a labor of love, a true labor of love from everybody's end. There are 14 inductees this year along with some award winners that we're going to feature here on our episode this week. And just a couple of names to kind of give you a preview of what to expect in this week's episode. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. Kevin Copps earns Pitcher of the Year awards from the College Baseball Foundation. His story is so interesting and so unique. And ultimately, he is a story of perseverance and a story of never giving up on your dreams. And... I think you're going to really love listening to what he has to say. Also, Cal Conley, Texas Tech shortstop. He earns the Brooks Wallace Award. Brooks Wallace shortstop at Texas Tech. His number retired. Ultimately, Brooks passed away from leukemia, but his memory is honored through this award, through the College Baseball Foundation. And Cal is the very first Texas Tech shortstop to earn this award. So it's extra special this year. And of course, we have Spencer Schwellenbach, who earns the John Olerud Two-Way Player of the Year Award from the College Baseball Foundation. Spencer, a pitcher at Nebraska, two-way player, phenomenal. This was his first year on the mound in college, so pretty cool that he earned this award. And then Jeremy Schiedinger earns Coach of the Year after he leads Georgia Gwinnett to their very first NAIA championship. I was spoiled, truly spoiled. Mark Marquis will be in this podcast episode, 41 years as Stanford's head coach, and Todd Helton. Todd Helton is the the leader of this class and one of the best two-way players in college baseball. Uh, He was at Tennessee, and and his story is awesome as well. So we're going to share some of those stories in the episode this week. And before I forget, really important, if you want to watch the Night of Champions, I'd love if you did that please go to collegebaseballhall.org or you can visit at College Diamonds on Twitter. They've got all the cool content and it's it's really special. So please go check that out, collegebaseballhall.org or at College Diamonds on Twitter. And so we thought, and we're fortunate that when you do all this work and you, and you pull it all together, you have these conversations. Um, you know, we thought it'd be awesome on this podcast to be able to, to take these conversations. Fortunate that uh, this group, you know, wants to promote what they're doing through our podcast, which has a loyal following. And I, and I think it's such a natural tie-in to, to take what you deem to be the best conversations and have them be this week's Perfect Games Amateur Hour. I mean, I really, really think that uh, these are cool things. These are great moments you're catching these people in. And I think grabbing hold of these current players and what they've accomplished, Schwellenbach and, um, you know, cops, obviously, who is uh, as old as I am now with what he's accomplished, which is incredible. <laughs> I love his story. Conley, just a freshman. Uh, Jay Sheetinger, who I really love, yes. you know, for multiple reasons um, in Georgia. So this is a cool one. You, you have a really great mixed bag of guests. It's going to be a wonderful podcast and uh, RPG and, and passionate baseball audience who might not have found that night of, of celebration is going to get a piece of it now. 
All right, let's bring in Kevin Copps to the Night of Champions. Kevin, I have been waiting for this interview. I'm so excited to catch up with you. You've cemented your name in college baseball history, not only in college baseball, but with the Razorbacks as well. You earned Collegiate Baseball National Player of the Year. You're the first relief pitcher to earn the Dick Hauser Trophy. You set the single season record for ERA at Arkansas, the SEC Pitcher of the Year. I'm, I know I'm missing other ones as well. You didn't even know if you were coming back for this season and you have now put in the work and you you got your mind right and got to a place where you could take your team to the highest level the farthest you could possibly take them this season you've had maybe a couple days to reflect to let it sink in a little bit what do you think about all this you know honestly I was talking to uh, Heston cursed uh, the other day about it and um when I think about the season, I really think about like the years prior to the season. I don't really, th- I don't really think much about like what I did this season. I think about kind of like all the, the work and the ups and downs that kind of went into um, building me up before this season. So that's, that's kind of what I reflect on for the most part. You have been through a lot, Tommy John, a pandemic season, among other things, and you weren't sure if you were going to come back. You had a conversation with Matt Hobbs and ultimately did decide to come back. What do you feel like were some of those factors that ultimately helped you get over injuries and get over um, whether or not you could be the guy that you wanted to be for your team? The Bible verse that sticks with me is... Uh, um, Galatians 6 9 it's um uh, don't grow weary doing good in the right time uh, you will prosper or reap the harvest and um, I kind of just stuck with that and like kept my head down and uh, just kept uh, going after it and I think uh, coach Hobbs's confidence in me when I didn't have it in myself uh, really kind of got me through those times can you kind of expand on the mentorship and relationship that you have with Coach Hobbs? Yeah, so for me personally, I like to think a lot, big overthinker. And it doesn't, when you think a lot, it doesn't mix well at all with baseball. So Coach Hobbs has really helped me simplify things. And like, he takes all the thinking out uh, for me. And also Opus has really helped that uh, too, being behind the plate. And uh just kind of allowed me to really like focus on myself and things that I need to, uh, things I need to think about and uh, get rid of the things I don't need to think about. That's amazing that they've been able to help you do that because you have definitely taken the road less traveled and there's been some people who have been the difference makers and some moments that have been the difference makers for you, ultimately leading you to this season. What was the best part of the season? When did you have the biggest smile on your face? I think after we won the SEC tournament, it was probably the biggest smile on my face. Um, for the most part, I just kind of tried not to focus on all that was going on because that can get really distracting and a lot of people are like throwing it in your face. So it makes it even harder, but um, just being able to win um, the SEC tournament for Coach Van Horn was huge for me. And for you personally, what, do you feel like people need to know about your journey to this moment who didn't see 
the struggles, didn't see what you had to go through the day in, the day out, you know, I'm sure phone calls to parents and, and to friends and whatnot who helped you get to this point. What should everybody know about your journey? I feel like with a lot of other people's, a lot of successful people's journeys, they don't really look at what happened before. Like, I feel like I like Elon Musk a lot. And I feel like he's a kind of a good example. People don't really see like the failures and the hard work and the hours that were put in before he became really successful. People just see like, oh, he's a billionaire and they just, that's all they think about. But I mean, my whole time here at Arkansas has been like, just trying to figure myself out. And I'm really thankful to have like the support from my parents. They've been, they've been definitely the biggest support for me through everything, every, anything I needed, they uh, were uh, sure to give it to me along with the university uh, of Arkansas. So now that you had this season, you made the decision to come back, you had some help with that, but maybe for those who might be on the fence too, and don't know whether or not they want to come back for another season, whether it's high school or their middle school team that they're playing for, maybe it is in college. What advice would you give to them? I, I believe that if you want something bad enough, um, you can go get it. And I think it comes down to more, not the work you're willing to put in, which is hugely important, but more so the things you're willing to give up because I think people don't realize how much, um, a lot or how much athletes uh, actually give up in their life to be able to do these things. You said you didn't really think too much about this season, but maybe more so the other seasons past and what it took to just even get to this point and now earning an honor like this. Have you thought about, you know, letting that soak in and, and what it's meant to you? It still doesn't feel real to me, to be honest. It hasn't soaked in. I still feel like Kevin. <laughs> I think I'll always just feel like Kevin, but, um, yeah, just unbelievably blessed. And like, I'm so thankful for like the Arkansas coaching staff, my parents, um, like uh, Bible study leaders, um, that have, everybody that's men mentored me through this. I feel like, um, I feel like that's not recognized enough. Like teammates, like I wouldn't be here if as many plays weren't made behind me. Like it's, it just, people don't realize how much easier that makes my job to, uh, to pitch out there when your defense is always up behind you and like so like without any of that support i wouldn't i wouldn't be here season for the ages a season for the record books and when you get some time let it soak in and enjoy it and then get back to work but i want to wish you a massive congratulations and i really appreciate your time thank you appreciate that i'll tell you the college world series uh, has been incredible and when it's all said and done, the champion will have earned it in a unique way. But that's what we've had now, you know, after 2020 and 2021 and, you know, the journey of NC State this year and, um, you know, Vanderbilt ending up in the finals with Mississippi State. It's uh, it's great to get Brian Sikowski's perspective on the games, on the athletes as he opens up his scouting notebook in this week's edition of Scouts Eyes. Here's here's Brian. And we are set for the College World Series final. Uh, starting on Monday in Omaha, of course, with Vanderbilt taking on Mississippi State. Uh, a couple of SEC schools, uh, obviously the, the best conference in the country in terms of collegiate baseball, um, not all together unsurprising to see two SEC teams match up in the final, um, though obviously uh, some unfortunate circumstances were surrounding the reason why NC State isn't there. Uh, but either way, the story of pitching is what it looks like, at least starting pitching, 
uh, between these final two teams. Uh, Jack Leiter from Vanderbilt, uh, projected top three, top four overall pick in the draft uh, in a couple weeks. He's on full rest. He should be able to go, uh, you know, 100, 120 pitches, whatever uh, Coach Corbin ends up needing out of him. Um, that gives them a leg up, considering Will Bednar from Mississippi State obviously just pitched. Uh, as they advance to Omaha, or pardon me, advance to the final uh, over Texas. But either way, lighter the guy uh, there. I, I don't know if we'll see Kumar Rocker. He pitched on Friday, uh, maybe after three, four days of rest. If they get to a Wednesday game, he's able to throw a little bit. Um, who's to say there? Obviously, we touched on Bednar. Uh, Christian McLeod from Mississippi State, a big left-hander, has kind of had a, a bit of a disappointing year. Um, has been good, but not incredible like he maybe was projected to be this year. Either way, a big arm in that Mississippi State rotation. And then you have to look at the bats. Obviously, Tanner Allen from Mississippi State, um, a consistent performer who's been really good for them this year. Uh, Rowdy Jordan, a, a very good player. Logan Tanner behind the plate there. Uh, and Vanderbilt's the same way. A lot of veterans, a lot of guys who have a lot of that bats. C.J. Rodriguez. Uh, Dominic Keegan, some younger guys like Carter Young, and obviously Enrique Bradfield in center field, along with many others. It's a very prospect-filled uh, College World Series final, a very talented College World Series final, as it is every year, uh, and we're looking forward to kicking that off uh, on Monday uh, and really determining, you know, after a long season, after a thankfully long season, after what happened in 2020, uh, a, a national champion. Looking forward to it. Brooks Wallace played shortstop at Texas Tech from 1977 to 1980, and eventually the Red Raiders retired Wallace's number. And now, Cal, you are the very first Texas Tech shortstop to earn the Brooks Wallace Award. I know this has to be so special for you. What did you think when you found out that you earned this award? Coach Tadlock called me. I was just hanging out at the house, and uh, Coach Tadlock called me and informed me that I had won the award, and I immediately um, thanked him and, and called my dad right away and my stepmom and uh, they both were tearing up and it, it was a really cool moment for my family and I. I. I didn't have any personal relationships with anyone with the Wallace family, but I've watched a couple of videos and I've talked to Larry Wallace, his brother, um, a couple of times. And just from what I've heard from people is that Brooks Wallace was an incredible person and he was outside of baseball, just a, an awesome guy. And he impacted other people's lives in a very positive way. And that's something that I strive to be off the field is just a good person and known for someone who does things right. What are some of the attributes you feel you possess that make you the best shortstop in college baseball? I always give credit to the guys around me. Um, I think with the way our team was this year, um, I was in a position to have success with the, the guys that we had around me, the guys in our lineup. Um, always getting on base and uh, things like that. Just little things that uh, maybe some people don't realize, but that go on on a baseball field. But a lot of things happen because of the guys that you have around you. Can you describe the relationship you have with Coach Tadlock and how he's mentored you? I originally went to University of Miami and then later came to Texas Tech after my freshman year. And Coach Tadlock from the start, I think me and him just kind of grew a bond naturally just from us being uh, smaller type guys that played shortstop. And uh, I, I think he kind of took me under from the moment I got here. And I can't thank him enough for that. I mean, I knew he was excited when I um, won the award. And, and I mean, I can't thank that guy enough for everything that he's done for me. 
Is there a moment or a game that stands out among the others and is really etched in your memory from this season? Opening weekend was it actually didn't turn out well for us. We uh, we went 0-3 opening weekend, but that that first weekend was one of the coolest weekends I've experienced so far. Uh, we played in front of, I mean, tens of thousands of people, like 20,000, 22,000 one night. Um, and we played a lot. We played Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Arkansas. And those three games, those atmospheres were just incredible. I mean, the adrenaline rush and just competing on that high of a level was, it was, uh, it was amazing. Who's someone who impacted you growing up and helped you pursue baseball, pursue the shortstop position? My dad was a shortstop infielder, middle infielder in the minor leagues. And growing up, I always looked up to him and, and I always strive to be as good or if not better than him. And, and uh, I know he'll probably be listening to this eventually, but um, that's kind of the, the route that I kind of took when looking up to somebody growing up. I always looked up to him just because I wanted to accomplish the things that he got to accomplish. And, and uh, I, I always wanted, I always had a dream of playing baseball. For a while. Cal, again, you are the very first Texas Tech shortstop to win the Brooks Wallace Award. What does this mean to you? I can't thank my family enough. Um, they've led me in the right direction my entire life. Um, and then since I've been here at Texas Tech, I mean, Coach Gardner, Coach Tadlock, uh, Joe Hughes, J. Bob Thomas, I mean, Coach Gutierrez, I, I can't thank those guys enough. I mean, ever since I came here, they've supported me and and always I've always felt like they've had my back uh, through any situation and and they've done a lot for me since I've been here so I also can't thank those guys enough. I'm so stoked to bring in Spencer Schwellenbach to the night of champions. Spencer welcome to it. How are you? I'm good thank you thanks for having me on. I am so stoked to have you on, man. A huge year for you. Not only do you win Big Ten Player of the Year, you also are here joining us because you earned the John Olerud Two-Way Player of the Year. How did you find this out? Who called you and how did that conversation go? Yeah, so I was on the way to the lake with a couple of my buddies and Coach Bolt called me and was like, I wish I could tell you this in person, but uh, you won the John Olerud Award. And he was just saying how proud he was of me. And uh, it was super, super cool to hear from him. So a masterful season with Nebraska. And I'm watching some highlights of you. I asked, guy, I like to ask guys this because I feel like being a two-way player is sometimes underlooked at how much dedication it truly does take to be prolific doing that. So can you describe what kind of dedication it takes to be the best of the best at the two ape job? Yeah, I mean, in the fall, uh, it was my first time pitching in two or three years, uh, just because of some injuries. And it was definitely super tough to kind of get into a routine. Like, am I throwing too much at shortstop? Do I need to, you know, take it easy, you know, to throw a bullpen on Tuesday, you know, before the weekend where we're scrimmaging? Uh, Am I getting enough ground balls in? Am I getting enough swings in and managing my throws, you know, for my arm and for my health? And, you know, after I got a hold of that and a good, a good plan worked out with the coaches, uh, it was all pretty smooth from there. And then in the spring, I just kind of relied on, you know, my work in the fall and winter to get me through, 
you know, all the weekends, just because I played shortstop and made a lot of throws. I never threw any bullpens midweek. So it was like, just kind of, you know, just trusting in my work in the fall and winter to get me through all of my outings on the mound. I feel like we really can't emphasize this point enough that you made me even more aware of that this was your first season in college back on the mound. You pitched in high school, but you had not pitched yet in college, your first season, and you go out and you win a prestigious award and you win Big Ten Player of the Year. Just a dominating season for you. Like, do you think are you able to really like comprehend what you were able to do and this being your first season back there? I mean, I didn't really understand what I was doing like for the team, like how much it meant to the team until like after the season, uh, just because, you know, just playing games, just trying to win. Uh, but, you know, I, when I was pitching, like, I just, it just felt like high school again. Like I was just competing and it was fun. And that's, that's all really I was, focused on so I didn't really I wasn't too bought into like all the stats or whatever I just wanted to win the games and you know just it just felt like I was a playing high school baseball again just having fun you know with guys I love and going from shortstop to the mound like you don't see that very often but I I really enjoyed doing that I think we could all probably take a couple notes out of your book and pay a little less attention to the stats and just go out there and have fun. But if I'm standing in the box facing you, like, what do I see? Describe the pitcher that you are, the presence you have on the mound. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, I work pretty quick. I'm going to attack the zone right away and make you beat my best stuff. Um, I like to keep hitters off balance, kind of throw different pitches at them. You know, as a reliever, you don't usually see three pitches, but since I was a starter in high school, I'd you know, I have a change-up slider and fastball that I like to throw whenever in the count just to keep people off balance. So, I mean, yeah, you'd see any of those pitches and, you know, hopefully I can get you off balance. All right. I love that. That's a great answer. And what about a moment, Spencer, or a game or a pitch that you made that is etched in your memory forever? Um. Well, definitely the last pitch of the game against Arkansas when we beat them in the ninth inning, I had kind of lost all my juice, all my gas. I was emptied out. I was pretty tired. Couldn't really find the zone. And it was 3-1 pitch to Jalen Battles. And I threw a high end pitch. It was not a strike. And he kind of helped me out and popped up to first and just living that like in the moment it was kind of crazy like we just beat the number one team in the nation and we're taking them to a game seven and it was my longest outing of the year on the mound close to 70 pitches and just knowing that like I was gassed and didn't really have anything left and you know my dad always says it all the time leave everything out there every single time and just knowing that I did that for my team that was pretty special I'm glad you mentioned your dad. I'm sure there's an army of people who helped you get to this point, especially coming back to pitching and just the mental game that that requires for you to come back and, and have the confidence to do that. Who are some of the people who were anchors for your season? Uh, yep. So I have two older brothers that really helped me out throughout my entire life with baseball. And my oldest brother is a pitching coach at a NAIA school and my 
other brother just signed a pro contract uh, in the independent league as a pitcher. So they've helped me out a lot with everything and just being able to, you know, switch up different grips with pitches if things aren't working out, um, especially my dad. Uh, as a kid, he was more vocal in, in the game. But now that I'm in college, he's kind of just let me do my thing. And I think that's been pretty helpful for me. Uh, but definitely our coaching staff, uh, just being able to, you know, help me out with what I need, throws, um, certain bullpens here and there, making sure I'm ready to go, making sure I'm healthy enough to pitch, um, you know, and just like my sister too, you know, you wouldn't think that she'd be a big help, but they're so supportive of me. My parents come to literally every single game and it's just always super fun to watch them in the stands, watching me pitch. Um, and then my girlfriend too, and her parents have been super supportive. They, they've been driving 12 hours to our games the last however many weeks, uh, just coming to support us. And, you know, it just means a lot to me. Well, your hard work is paying off and the people who have been supporting you clearly have made a huge impact. I, I, you can see it and you can tell, and I, I see how important all of those people are to you. And ultimately, Spencer, I wanted to know what this award means to you, the John Olerud Two-Way Player of the Year Award. Obviously, you didn't start this season thinking that this was something you could achieve, wanted to achieve. I'm sure you just wanted to win for your team. But now that you have earned this award, what does it mean to you? Yeah, this award means a lot. I mean, I when I heard about the award that I was nominated for it early in the year, I was like, wow, no way. That'd be like super cool. Like just the history behind it, the people who have won the award before me, uh, all the great players who have done that. Um, and just, I don't know, I feel like the two-way award is like super special just because it it means you helped your team on both sides of the ball. And I don't know, I, I feel like that that is a real true meaning to what I wanted to do this year to be supportive and, and to be, you know, a, a lock for my team, basically just come in and close games out and be their everyday shortstop as well. Um, so that, yeah, it means a lot to me. Jeremy Brown had a chance to go and see players that he's been watching since he was 13 years old or not he, they were 13. Maybe he knew about him at 13, but they were 13. They're now 16. They're now 17. At Perfect Games Junior National Showcase, there were some ridiculously epic things that happened. Danny knows this. Um, you know, she was a big part of the broadcast. But some crazy numbers, crazy stats, some prospects in this, my gosh, this 2023 class that are moving the needle at an epic direction. Scouts Notebook opened up by Jeremy Brown, not from when he was 13, not from when he was 13, but from now he's a grown-up man. You know, the Junior National, it's one of the best showcases we have every year for the underclassmen. Allows them to put their talents on display at a national-type level. And for the first time in almost what felt like an eternity, but over a year, college coaches were able to attend. The backstop at East Cobb 1 was full again, just like old days. We had tournaments going on all over the place, prospects of all ages everywhere. But let's dig into a couple of the guys that stood out at the Junior National Showcase and I'm excited just to open up right in the Midwest with Coley in of Nebraska. You know, he ran like a 6'5 through 98 from the outfield, found consistent barrels in game. 
um, jumped onto the mound, upper 80s, continued to swing it at the tournament following Junior National, and he's going to be one that rises up the boards, I think, a lot come the next update. Left-hander Adam Hackman out of Missouri, up to 93, um, uncommitted. So he definitely was a name college coaches were locking in on after a couple pitches, even warm-up pitches. It was, he's big, he's left-handed, it's a really fast arm. Like, what's not to like here, you know? And those are two that just immediately jumped to mind. Um, Kind of jumping over to the West Coast, Dean West. He's been a personal favorite since we saw him back at the 14U Select Festival. Ran a 6.5, but... It was the barrel in game. It was consistent, consistent, consistent. Um, fastballs, curveballs, pull side up the middle. Whatever was thrown at him, he was locked in throughout the event. Definitely a standout. And to continue with the standout select fest theme, got to talk about Walter Ford. Came into the event ranked 20th in the country. Comes out casually, sits 95, 96. I had personally never seen him above 93. Um, puts an uh, exclamation point on the outing with 97 at the knees for a called third strike to wrap up the outing, had a hard biting curveball, breaking ball in the low eighties. And prior to his outing on the mound, hits a home run in game over the wall, just kind of like, Hey, I can also do this. Um, Daniel Cuvet down in Miami kind of jumped to the other side of the country. Um, just a lot of barrel. He's another one that, Put on a show in BP. We had a lot of very impressive shows in BP, from him to Arjun Namala, um, a Florida State commit. Just uh, it, it was a, it was a really good event. Can't not talk about Max Clark, one of the top ranked guys in the class. Came out from Indiana, ran a six five of his own. Really good BP, left handed stick. Um, all the tools are there that pro scouts probably already know about him. If they don't, they will very soon. He, uh, the tools just play in game in a showcase setting. And I feel like I'm barely just even touching the tip of the iceberg with some of the talent here. We saw four different records either tied or broken this year at the Junior National Showcase. Wes Mendez, primary arm, threw 94 across the diamond from first base. Big time velocity, big time arm strength, real two way potential there for the young Vanderbilt commit. Jorge Gonzalez Fibo, it was my first time ever personally seeing him. He comes out and just casually rips 101 across the diamond. Like, that. You that's like a mythical number. You never hear about that at any age level as an amateur. Um, so that definitely opened eyes. Colton Wombles popped a 175, tying the record for the event. You could say, hey, that's a showcase pop. But, like, he came out and threw out all three runners that attempted to steal on him, really putting an emphasis, an exclamation point on, like, yeah, the catch and throw tools are very real. And then, of course, Walter Ford's 97-mile-per-hour fastball. Like, that's coming from the National Showcase. That's going to stand out, let alone an underclass event. So, in all, I mean, I feel like I'm forgetting top-of-the-class guys. And if you allowed me to, I could talk for over an hour just on this event alone. It's one of my favorites every year. The talent was phenomenal. Just knowing where these guys were a year ago and knowing they have another two years, some of them, another year, until they graduate and are put on the main stage for the pro scouts is equally exciting. Just knowing they're going to get that much better that they have that much left in the tank. And it was a great way to open up the summer, seeing everybody again, seeing the college coaches and just knowing 
baseball's back and I'm ready to get back on the road. A three-year starter at Stanford and Cardinal head coach for 41 seasons. Welcome to the Night of Champions, Mark Marquis. Coach, I want to start with your back-to-back national championships in 1987 and 1988. What was the most rewarding part about going back-to-back? In college baseball, the ultimate goal is when you meet in the fall is uh, the goal is to get to Omaha. That's the dream of every college baseball player. And uh, We started to turn the program around in 81. Um, John Elway was on that team, Steve Bouchelle, a lot of great ones. And we made it the regionals, but we finally got to the World Series. Weren't expected to uh, to win it, but uh, we surprised everybody. And uh, we had a pretty good pitcher in Jack McDowell. When Cy Young signed with the White Sox, so uh, it was it wasn't coaching. It was it was Jack McDowell and a lot of great great players. And then uh, we uh, hit a, a grand slam against Ben McDonald against LSU at that time. It kind of put us over the top. And uh, I thank Ben Ben, and he went on to be a first round draft pick and phenomenal. But uh, that was that was something special. And winning that was was the ultimate goal that any any player or any college coach has. And then and, and we had a really good team. And then '88. We went back and we're lucky to get there. We weren't anywhere near as good a team, but we, we had good players. We, we still had good players, but uh, uh, it was, uh, well, Mike Messina's not bad. You know, we had him as a freshman. So again, back to pitching, but as a freshman, you wouldn't expect that. But I think the players were used to the environment, a lot more um, recognition, publicity, and how you handle that. And I think that really helped us to, to win that, that second one. So uh, that was real special. Back to back and tried again for another 30 years, but never happened again. So you kind of appreciate it when you, when you, when you win and back to back real special. It's a phenomenal feat, Coach, and you mentioned some of the most talented people who played the game. They played for you. When you sit around the dinner table and and you've got some maybe old players with you or when you have some reunions and you get around and you get a group of guys together, what's one of the memories or, or a couple of the memories or moments that people are laughing about or always wanting to recall? A lot of things that happens, uh, Danny, that, that you find out about. I hear stories that I never knew things that happened for the players, you know, in the hotel or doing after the game or things that they do have fun. And so they, they say, coach, you know, we, we were doing this, whatever, nothing bad, but, you know, just fun things. And I think it's it's things that uh, that are special to them. And it really gets down to relationships. And you put all, put all that time and effort into it, and then you, you m- m- make the final – successful goal you reach it or getting to the world series is the biggest goal when you first go there you know and uh we in my career I was very fortunate I think we went 14 times so it's special it's a special atmosphere and uh the, but when you when the player they talk about the games you know the winning the championship game but I probably think a lot more about the relationships, not only they have that year, but the years before, how hard they work, which they did, and and kind of the fun things. And I think those bonds are really special. Uh, they talk about the, the wins, sometimes the losses, but they also talk about the relationships. And that, you know, 30, 40 years later, you they still have those memories, which just makes it makes it really special. And you have so many of them, Coach, three-year starter at Stanford, 41-year historic career, as you mentioned, and you're on the shortest of short lists 
for people who have played and coached in the college world series. And you've had time to reflect, you've had time to maybe sit down and think about how special that is. And I don't want to be cliche with you coach, but what makes you the most proud? Is it playing? Is it coaching in the college world series? Is it both? Is there a specific moment that you're most proud of throughout your career? Well, again, as a player, obviously getting to, to the World Series uh, my sophomore year, and I was, very, I was very blessed, very fortunate. I have two mentors that are, are really got me into coaching and helped me in my coaching career. Dutch Ferring, legendary coach at Stanford. His final year was my sophomore year. He recruited me to Stanford, and we made the World Series, and then he retired. And Dutch stayed on, worked at Stanford, but really got me involved in, in the Olympic movement for baseball. Got me involved. And I was able to coach on some USA teams and do some things. Actually, highlighted as a coach of the 88 Olympic team. And that's really for Dutch Ferry getting me involved in, in USA baseball. And then Ray Young, his assistant, was my head coach for two years. And then Ray hired me as an assistant coach four or five years later. So I was very, I was very fortunate, very, very to be able to get back and, you know, I, I, my wife and I talk about this. I, I spent 50 years of my life at Stanford, four as an undergraduate, five as an assistant coach for Ray Young, and 41 years as a head coach. And uh, that doesn't happen. I became a head coach at 28 years old. That doesn't happen today. So my wife and I were discussing this and how in coaching profession today and whatever the sport is, how do you stay in one sport, one place that long? So really fortunate. But when, since my retirement, you've had, I've had a lot more time to think about things that you don't have time to think about when you're coaching. And the thing that really highlighted me the last year I announced my retirement, I, I, I just wanted to retire, but I, I set my retirement into a year. And the, I didn't want that, but it worked out well because they had a, a function on at Stanford Sunken Diamond. And I had, I'd say 120 players from different eras come. And what is the most important thing in your coaching career, and that was that day. Because when you find, if you coach long enough, you have players come back to you, not talk about baseball, but talk about you as a teacher and what impact you might have had with them. And that may happen when they're 45, 50 years old. But if you haven't coached that long, that length of time, you don't get that feedback. So I think really of all the great things that have happened to myself in my coaching career, and more importantly for the players, that's that relationship. Not only the great players, the kids are doctors, lawyers, teachers, you know, great husbands, whatever, but they come back and they say, this was fantastic. And I think that's why we have athletics in college. It's a great learning experience, great teach for, and I have three daughters, so for, for men and women, and that's so special. But I think really in the long run, it's a relationship because some of the guys I had the biggest problems with you know, just, just, you know, just trouble. 30, 40 years later, they're saying, God, coach, thank you for, <laughs> yeah, putting up for you for three years. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just a special time. And it's really those relationships that you remember when you retire and you spend a lot of time because you get feedback, you get feedback from players that you coached. I think that that's really common, something that we hear a thread throughout college athletics, especially our coaches who have spent so much time coaching the game it's important to win right winning is important that's how you kept your job for so long but along the way what becomes even more important is that you're ensuring that these men and women are ready to join the real world are ready to be great people once they finish playing this sport and they enter the next chapter of their lives and obviously you have done that just as a testament to what you're talking about 
Is there something that you kind of stuck by throughout your years of coaching that maybe a motto or a phrase or something that you really felt like resonated with people that also attributed to the success of your teams? Well, the, the main thing is, is competition. And I think all of the, the elite athletes, and if you're playing a scholarship, outstanding baseball school, whatever the sport is, it's competition. And that, and compete in a, a class manner. You know, you know, don't show other players up, don't break the rules, play by the rules, but the competition. Uh, as I told my players, and I think this is one thing that I really always emphasize, the greatest compliment you can re uh, receive from your opponent is that he was a great competitor. And I think that carries over, same with my daughters and their jobs or whatever they do, or their sports, that, that is something. Because when it's all said and done, if you're a great competitor, you've probably gotten the most out of your ability, whatever that field is, in athletics or whatever. And I think, I don't think coaches emphasize the value, the educational value of sport in college enough. We talk about how many wins you have, but if you talk to anybody that played a sport at the highest level in college, okay, they're gonna tell you that that experience helped them the entire life. The other thing that I told my players, and it was, it's kind of ironic, and I had, I had great players, obviously. I, coaching's over, I told my wife, you could, you could beat me if you could recruit better than I could. But, but the thing is, is you, you, I would tell them, you're great, whatever, but you're probably not gonna be a major league player for five, 10 years. I said, I've coached, especially as longer I coach, I've coached for 30 years and I've had four guys that made a living playing professional baseball. But <laughs> one of those guys said, well, I'm going to be one of those guys. But the point being is it's a learning experience and they, but the education, we need to, we need to emphasize that a lot more, I think, as coaches and because we are, we're not professional coaches. Again, they do a great job and that's a, that's a difficult job but we're teachers and educators and hopefully we will continue to do that because it is a value to those student athletes. Most definitely. Let's switch quickly back to your playing days. So three year starter, and you also earned first team all America honors in 1967. When you were playing at Stanford, if I was sitting in the stands watching you play, what would I see? What would I know about you that, um, you know, makes you feel proud of the game that you played? Well, what you would say, I was really a big, I wasn't a power guy or whatever. First of all, I was recruited to Stanford to play football. That was my sport in high school. And the reason I went to Stanford was because John Ralston, who was the coach at that time, guaranteed me that I could play both sports at Stanford, not just football. A lot of football coaches at that time said you could, but you really couldn't, you know, football was king. And I was able to do that. So I was able to play football all, uh, all four years and then baseball all four years. And uh, I played with a pretty good, uh, my roommate in for football was Gene Washington, who wasn't a bad football player, NFL hall of fame wide receiver for the, the Niners. So uh, I was very fortunate. I got to play both sports, but I think the, the, the key, the, the key thing is, is that you got to, it, if you saw me play, you would say he hustles. He plays hard and he hustles. And that's one of the things that a lot of the players that played for me, they understood when they come to play for Stanford. That was something that we would, we would sprint on and off the field and we, we took pride in. And I think that's what, that's what I did. And I, and I told the players, and it's true, because I've talked to a lot of scouts and people, people that watch the game of baseball, they admire, they like the player that runs a routine ground ball out hard. You know, again, Professor, you're making $2 million. You can't run the ball. But when you when you play hard, people, fans like it. 
And I know scouts like it. So I think if you saw me play, I think it would be he, he, he's a hustler. And I think I try to get my players to do that. I absolutely think that you've done that. And you've obviously impacted so many people throughout your life. And I know you'll continue to do that. And now the College Baseball Hall of Fame is showing love back to you because you gave so much to college baseball. You're part of the 2021 class. What does this honor mean to you? It means a great deal. Uh, I'd like to thank the, the Hall of Fame committee because I think there's some tremendous tremendous athletes and coaches and in the hall of fame. And it's, it's really, it's, it's tremendous honor, but it's very humbling when you look at the other people that, that are in there. And that's uh, uh, it, it, it gets back to the players. I, I coach, but I've been very blessed and fortunate. And uh, my best teammate has been my wife. Okay. Uh, my three daughters, uh, my daughters, you can't, you couldn't get away from baseball. We, she, they were able to go. The youngest was very young, 14 World Series. That was the, that was for. I'll never forget my oldest. I'll tell my story. Uh, uh, we were playing um, uh, in, in Omaha, and Roger Clemens was on Texas, which is he's a pretty good pitcher. And we were staying at the Marriott Hotel. It had a nice indoor pool. And I went back early. My wife couldn't come, but Bridget, my oldest, could go. And she said, Dad, can I go down in the, the, the hotel uh, and, and swim in the swimming pool? It's indoors. I said, sure, go ahead, Bridget. And so I go down there to get her. And there's Roger Clemens playing catch with, with a, a ball in the pool. I said, you know who that? And then later on, he's a major league. I said, look at that, Roger Clemens. He was so nice to her. She was about eight, nine years old. And he was throw, playing with her in the pool and throwing her the ball and stuff. So those are tremendous experiences. But it's a family deal. And if uh, you're a coach's wife, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of sacrifices, a lot of things. But uh, she was my best, uh, my best teammate uh, for oh, those 41 years until today. All right, I am more than excited to bring in Coach Sheetinger to the Night of Champions. Coach, welcome to it. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, obviously, uh, fired up to be here with you all, and I just appreciate the opportunity to connect. So, Danny, thanks for having me on. There's so many things that we get to talk about. I'm really excited. And where I want to start, you're the 2021 Skip Bertman National Coach of the Year. And I wanted to start with your definition of a coach. Oh, wow. Get me fired up. Um, I think it's one of the most immense opportunities that we have uh, in life. And, and I don't take that word lightly. I probably didn't understand the gravity of that when I first got into coaching. It was a little ego driven and it was about me and it was it was less about, you know, everyone else. And luckily and thank God, I, I came to understand that it is all about our players. Our players are our rock stars. They matter the most. But it's more than just double plays and, and doubles in the gap. It's really about helping these guys figure out, ultimately, can they develop the courage to go out in life and make their own decisions and follow their own path and become who they want to become? That's the calling of a coach. You, you talk about, and, and Danny, again, you get me fired up on this. But when I was 12, I was a little chubby white kid that thought I was going to be a point guard in the NBA. And I had a little league coach, Bud Ritchie, that he literally altered the trajectory of my life. He taught me baseball in a way that no one had before. He took interest in me in a way no one had before. And baseball became a passion and less of a hobby. And that's what you're trying to do every day as a coach is impact someone in a way and, and teach life lessons. And more importantly, we always talk about the gray areas. Anyone can teach the black and the white, but the gray, that's where people start to really understand how the game really works and, and how the gods work and, and how to really put yourself in a position to be successful. But really what you're teaching them is that, as they move forward in life, Danny, they can go out, compete anyone they ever come up against 
because of your tutelage. That's the power of a coach. So you're teaching these young men skills on and off the field, which I always think is the most important thing when it comes to a coach and the role that you play in their lives for however long that may be. It's always one of the top qualities, I think, of the best coaches in sport. There's no doubt about that. And this year, on top of winning this award, your team also goes out, Georgia Gwinnett, and wins the 2021 NAIA National Championship. I can't even imagine how you're feeling and still maybe trying to find some time to reflect on the ride that you had this season, what it took to get there, the adversity you all faced. But is there a moment, is there a game that stands out among the rest this season that means the most to you? There's a lot of moments. I think anytime your your team goes through this this journey, uh, there's a lot of moments that stand out. There's a few. Um, one is this. We talked about, and, and it was honestly, it was probably words until we really believed in it, but we really talked about trust the process, and that's such a, a cliche term to most. But, I mean, when you step back and you look at the start point and the end point and you see who we were at our first team meeting and then you see a team progress through a season and you – had a ticket on the roller coaster for the ups and downs and the injuries and the, um, you know, the, the stuff that, that happens within the, the walls of your dugout, it, it's trust the process. I mean, we, we, it's so awesome, Danny, because there was a point in early April. I mean, we were winning some games, but we still didn't really know who we were. We had some adversity. We maybe were putting some stuff under the rug, you know, to kind of move the season, but there was a point in, in early April where we'd lost a game and it wasn't good. And it was, you know, we came back the next day and we didn't bring our gloves. We had to condition a little bit. And it was less about the running and it was more about the conversation. We finally hit a point where this team needed to be addressed on some things. They needed to address some things between each other and between the coaches. And it was a great way to kind of get back to, hey, we all realize that there's a great opportunity here. Let's pull it together and let's move it forward. And so, yeah, there is a moment that now it's going – we talked about two things, Danny, that that stood out. Wherever we want to go in life, wherever we want to go with this team, two things must be present. There must be trust and there must be love. And if those two things are there, then no one can keep us off the field. It was a pretty awesome experience to walk in as a coach. And, and I always felt like our presence on the field was there five minutes before we parked the vans. I mean, we just had a buzz about us. We just had an energy about us. There was a confidence. But really, if you boil those two things down, there was complete trust between players and coaches, this team, our ability to play. There was love throughout. There was genuine hug you, I love you love that was throughout our dugout. And those two things propelled us to, to obviously get the confidence to go to win that last game. It was a talk about teaching yourself some things, but more about the, what the guys learned this year and how they'll always go forward and have this, this great period of time where they fell into the simplest form of trust and love and it'll take you wherever you want to go. It's really easy to see why you are the national coach of the year. A Skip Bertman. Can you tell uh, my wife that? No. What's that? Can you tell my wife that? No. I'm yeah, just... yeah, I will. I will tell anybody that. It's really obvious to me. And you mentioned your coaches and coaching staff, and we know that it takes a group effort, and we know how impactful and important college baseball coaching staffs are. Who are some of those guys on your staff that helped you get to this point? Well, I'm going to start at the top, and, and I'm going to start with my athletic director, Dr. Darren Wilson. And the uh, reason being is he was a huge piece of the puzzle as to why this job, uh, we even entertained it as a family. 
because he is the ultimate leader. He is the catalyst of our athletic department. Um, there was a point this season, Danny, early on where I maybe walked away a little bit from relationships and I walked away from uh, process and I got into results and I got into got to win, got to win, got to win. And uh, my athletic director had enough feel as a former baseball coach to come in and close the door and then enough of a relationship with me to challenge me and go, dude, you're walking away from who you profess to be. And I can't watch it anymore. You've got to get back to what matters most. And that was a pivot point for me. And you talk again, that's, that's real leadership. That, that's embracing an uncomfortable conversation. Everything starts at the top at our athletic department with Dr. Wilson. And so to have him as, as our leader inside those walls is, is imperative. And it was really cool as a baseball guy to bring home the first baseball national championship for him because he's worked extremely hard. We've won a lot in tennis. We're a tennis dynasty, but we needed to, to bring one home for baseball. It's cool to have him uh, have that moment. Um, our, our coaching staff from Steve Les to Kyle Norton to John Topoleski and uh, BV and Ford and, and those guys that you talk about a, a small college baseball, we only have one full-time assistant coach. So you got a bunch of dudes that are wearing it on the chin to volunteer, to be part of this and to bring value and to sacrifice. I mean, and we've all been there. That's part of the, the dues of coaching. But the really neat part is that these guys embrace that opportunity. They were sun up to sundown. Uh, they found every opportunity to be, and more importantly, we embrace the opportunity to really make these players the rock stars. If you want to build a player's program, then the players have to matter all the time and all support staff recognize their importance, not our importance, their importance. And uh, we fed into that. And these guys did an awesome job and obviously supported our guys and um, the sacrifices they made certainly uh, don't go unnoticed. I think it's one of those that when you work hard for what you really, really want, um, you start to reap the benefits. The game knows at the end of the day, and those guys definitely got rewarded for it. So a national championship in 2021 and along with the Skip Bertman National Coach of the Year Award, what does that honor specifically mean to you? I keep thinking that the punk crew is coming in here and they're going to take it away from me like, like I've, been, I've been catfished this whole time. It's, uh, it's still overwhelming in, in so many ways. You got to, you know, I'm a little college baseball nerd. So I, I grew up watching Skip and those LSU teams and, and Coach Garrido and uh, the Ron Polks. I mean, I watched the the growth of SEC baseball, you know, being from the South. And so, I mean, I'm getting chills right now. Anything with Skip's name on it, it just, I mean, I'm going to stare at that thing for hours because that guy, he's, he's a Ron Frazier. He, he's a, he's a, a literal God of our baseball community of college baseball. There is no SEC. There is no LSU. There is no college baseball is what we know it today without a guy like Skip Bertman. So like my adoration for him goes so deep, but I also I'll draw a parallel here because I've thought a lot about this a along those lessons that listening to Skip and listening to coach Garrido and obviously coach Augie and I got really close before he passed away. When you listen to those older, older coaches and those legends, Danny, they really believed in the gods in the game and treat the game the right way and play the game the right way. And, and Skip had, you know, this belief in magic. You know, things can come together. The power of a team is much greater than the individual. And I've taken those, you know, and again, it takes time to process those. It takes time to learn how to apply them. But I've definitely, you know, I've, I've gone all in on that uh, throughout my coaching career, and especially this year with this team, is you, you go back to trust, go back to love. But there's this bond that forms when you really, really have belief. When there is true belief from from all corners of your dugout walls, 
um, I, you get that from Skip. And so to, to stare at that award when it comes in, and I, I will for hours, I just go back to, man, that, that was a guy that was a guardian of the game, and he really helped uh, keep college baseball, preserve it, enhance it, elevate it. And that's what we're all trying to do as coaches. I think it's always a let's give back, let's push forward, let's advance, let's help a youth coach, let's help a high school coach, let's use our platform to, to help grow the game. And that's certainly what Skip did. So if anything, it falls on that. I'm going to follow that path that he laid out and, and so many before him and after him. Um, it means a lot if you can't tell. There's a lot of passion behind that. Thank you. Well, you'll have to find a special spot for it in your office or maybe, you know, on your nightstand, wherever you decide to put it. But I want to wish you a massive congratulations and well as well. And as I said, it's, it's very obvious to see why you earned this award this season. So congratulations, coach. Danny, thank you very much. It's all about the players. Uh, awards, coaches get way too much credit. Awards are about the players and the men and their performance on the field. So this is for our players. This is for our program. Uh, this is for Georgia Gwinnett as we move forward. And Danny, I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. I am so excited to bring in Todd Helton to the Night of Champions. Todd, welcome to it. Congratulations on your induction. Very honored to be inducted into the College Baseball Hall of Fame. Thank, I want to thank everybody for uh, everybody that's helped me get in and, um, you know, just helped me celebrate this. Um, thanks to them. I'm so excited to dive in a little bit to such a storied career you had at Tennessee. So, Todd, I know you know these things, but let me brag for a second. You <laughs> tossed a complete game four hitter in the first game of the 1995 College World Series. You are a 370 career hitter with 38 home runs, 238 RBI, and a 636 slugging percentage. I have to know from your perspective, what kind of dedication did it take to be such an incredible two-way player in college? It took a lot of dedication um, and a lot of lack of sleep. Um, and, you know, you think about going to school and playing football and baseball, that's a lot to do. Um, but I had, I had great coaches, uh, Coach Cutcliffe, David Cutcliffe, who's at Duke now. He, he, he realized I was going to be a baseball player, and he uh, – he let me go hit at times instead of going to a meeting. So um, I'm very appreciative to him. And um, he's like a father figure to me now. So love him. So 1995, you lead Tennessee to its first college world series since 1951. When you get the guys together, when you're sitting around the table, reminiscing about those moments, is there a story or something that sticks out to you that, that makes you guys laugh or remind you of such a great experience you had there? We did have a great experience. Uh, we won a couple games, didn't, didn't, didn't win it, but uh, we were happy that we made it. Uh, you know, you know the, I really don't have any funny stories except the, the first batter of the game was a guy named Shane Monahan, And I threw him a first pitch, just easy breaking ball, and he – slugged it and my coach came up to me and said why did you throw him such a good pitch the first pitch of the game I said I thought he was going to take he's like he never takes he always swings first pitch so uh that was one of those hits right there that that of the four hits that I, I say is not my fault that's right we only look back on that and think fondly about those moments. yes I love that story. Todd, a monstrous college career. You're a Dick Hauser Trophy winner, National Player of the Year, SEC Player of the Year, all in 1995. Is there an award that means a little more to you than another? You know, the SEC Player of the Year was is pretty fantastic. Um, 
tough conference. Uh, there was a lot of good players then. So kind of, kind of the SEC is one that I like, but, you know, being the national player of the year is not too bad either. So all of these accolades, an incredible career. Is there a person or a group of people that inspired you, impacted you throughout that time at Tennessee? Coach David Cutcliffe was the one that inspired me the most. Every um, before every game, he you know he gave us a workbook to do, and uh, there was always baseball quotes in it. Uh, so I really appreciated that. Um, uh, who who else helped me? Well, uh, Coach Bill Moziello. Uh, was one of my coaches. He's now at TCU, but uh, he he really uh, he really helped me just to be a professional. Uh, you know, just the little things like don't untuck your shirt when you're still on the field and stuff like that. That uh, that I took, carried with me all through my big league career. Um, and then there was Larry Simcox, who was my other coach. Who um, he was a defensive wizard. So. He helped me a lot with fielding and, and learning to be a first baseman because coming into coming into college, I was an outfielder um, and they moved me to first and it's uh, never got never left. Well, I, I played a little bit out in, uh, in the big leagues, my first couple of games, but uh, other than that, I stayed at first base the whole time. You have given so much to college baseball and now college baseball gets to give back to you being inducted into the class of 2021. When you got the phone call, you found out that you were receiving this honor. How did that feel? And, and what does the honor mean to you? It means a lot to me. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of unique uh, getting into the college baseball hall of fame. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an important hall of fame to be in uh for a guy who uh you know pitched and played first base in college um and football so it was it, it was great to get honored uh or induct and inducted to the baseball hall of fame every single week on sirius xm's espnu hunter pence and i host perfect game college baseball it's tuesday it's 10 o'clock again sirius xm's espnu and hunter hunter is such a great perspective in talking with these athletes he's just fresh out of the game but he's always that kid he's always a college player he played successfully in college he had to go the mid-major route this week here's a slice of the the pizza pie a conversation with catcher Matthew Nelson from Florida State University who's got a huge huge upside as a young man who's going to be heading to the big leagues pretty swiftly he's going to be drafted very high but this is about a book this is about reading I love where Hunter and he go in this conversation here's a piece a perfect game, college baseball. Hunter Pence, Matthew Nelson, go. Yes, Matthew, I can agree a uh, 100,000%. Um, saving 90 feet is such a big deal in a lot of these close games, especially with how how intense the pitching is these days. Uh, you know, and, and as you as you go up higher and higher, it's just the difference between, uh, you know, like like saving runs and, and winning games. And, it, and it's exponential having a catcher that can block balls. Rooney mentioned that it was he called you old school. And I, I don't know exactly what that means because I haven't seen you catch. And, and obviously, we want to get into the 1,200 OPS, the 23 homers, and a very short amount of games considering the season. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about your old school catching style, where you got your form, and, uh, and, and, and how you've developed into the catcher that you are today. Yeah, it's just something I've always done. And a lot of the new school stuff is catching on one knee. And, you know, I believe in that, but only to a certain extent. Um, I catch on one knee with nobody on. 
but with nobody on and there's two strikes on a batter, I'm always up in my secondary position, my two feet set up, ready to block a ball or, you know, ready to make a play or something like that. And then with runners on, I'm always in the two feet set up, just the old traditional way, just because personally for me, it's a more athletic stance and it's something that works for me. Uh, the one knee setup nowadays, especially that you see high school kids learning, even younger kids in 12 and 14 U. You know, they're in the one knee setup with runners on first and second, ready to throw somebody out. But it's like a 70, 80 slot where you have to have the right pitch at the right time. And plus, nine times out of 10, the runner's stealing off of the pitcher. They're not stealing off of the catcher. So that just makes it even more hard. So why take away that athletic ability when you can already be there ready to go if the pitcher shanks a pitch and you still have a shot? It makes a lot of sense. And I'm a big fan of like finding your rhythm and finding your way versus just like, this is what they say. This is what has to be. There's, there's many ways to do it and do it correctly. So that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, when you think about it, like having your chance to block the ball and, and just, you know, making sure you're in an athletic position to handle everything. So, uh, I'm excited to, I didn't even know all of this about catcher. So thanks for sharing that, but I want to talk a little bit yeah. also about, about the offensive season that you had, um, obviously, you know, driving the ball really well, Talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, your bats this year, this, this college season, your, your, you know, the power numbers and, you know, what, what was really clicking for you? Was there adjustments from last year to this year that, that made any of these changes? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest stories that everybody talked about this year was my weight loss. And, you know, I was 205, 210, got down to 185 during COVID, came back into school at 185, got back in the weight room is just doing beefier lifts uh, with our team. And I got back up to 200, but it was a good 200 instead of a dumpy 200. So not only that, was I more athletic and the body was there and the body was ready, but also I opened a couple books on one book called Relentless Optimism, another one called Teammate by David Ross, another one called Psycho Cybernetics. And it just taught a lot me about the mental side of baseball. And, you know, the way they described it was, the mental aspect of baseball is like an old gym full of cobwebs. Nobody trains it. So what happens when you go in there, you clean up the cobwebs and you turn the lights on? Well, things start to happen and, you know, the energy starts going, the weights get moving. Well, that was just the mental side for me. And that helped a lot with the game. And for the physical aspect of it as a hitter, I always used to be a handsy hitter, but, you know, I really took this offseason in consideration, really learned how to use my entire body and keeping my hands connected to my shoulder rather than just using my hands to hit and my hips to fire. So that's just the physical aspect of it, but a lot of it was mental too. This is cool that you shared this stuff. This is cool that the College Baseball Hall of Fame wanted to share this stuff because it's, uh, you know, perfect game. Uh, I think, Danny, we can talk about those that go to the big leagues, and it's neat, and it's awesome, and it should be part of the resume. But perfect game's about college baseball. Perfect game's about that kid going to D2, going to D3, going to NAI, going to one or two showcases because his family can pull together the money and he can go get on the map. That's really what perfect game's all about. That's really the perfect game business model. There's only 1,500. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of perfect game alums who have gone to college baseball. So I love the fact that, you know, the elite spot, the perfect, or I should say the College Baseball Hall of Fame, shared their show that you produced and did such a great job. It's cool. It's a perfect fit to have it on this podcast. So special. A couple of things I think that stood out to me. Number one, Kevin Copps and talking about his journey. And if you look at his bio page on Arkansas, he basically played every other year. He had Tommy John and then he was back. He had the pandemic and then he was back. And he didn't even know if he was going to come back this year. 
he, he, he was questioning whether he should come back, whether he was good enough. He didn't just want to come back and take up a spot. And ultimately it paid off as, I mean, that guy doesn't have enough shelf room for all the trophies he earned and all the accolades he earned this season and so well-deserved for his team. And then Cal Conley is the very first Texas Tech shortstop to win the Brooks Wallace award for, for himself, for his school, you know, Brooks Wallace, a Texas Tech shortstop who passed away from leukemia, but you know, so special that that was passed down to him as the very first Texas Tech shortstop and just honored to be able to share some of those stories. Spencer Schwellenbach's very first season on the mound in college baseball, and he earns the two-way player award. So, and, and as you said, Jeremy Sheetinger, man, that dude makes you want to run through a brick wall. The first NAIA championship for Georgia Gwinnett. I feel spoiled that I, I was the one who got to share some of those stories and I love college baseball. I think it's so special college world series is, you know, rounding the corner to the best couple of days that exist in Omaha. And I, I think it's so fitting that we had the chance to honor the night of champions and honor the hall of fame inductees as the college world series is starting to get to the home stretch here. Incredible stuff. Now get back to work and do some original interviews next week. Quit repurposing <laughs> stuff. Awful. Just terrible. Just total repurposing. It's just this. No, I, I think it's great. Oh I think it's great. Hey, hey, without, without moving the needle one way or, the, or another, I, I want to congratulate Vanderbilt, Mississippi state. I'm sure yeah. by the time people listen to this, they will, they will, uh, they will have crowned a champion or they, maybe they haven't, but uh, I want to congratulate both of them. I, I want to congratulate NC state, no matter what oh, yeah. you want to make of that conversation. I mean, to me, I don't want to make anything of the conversation about NC State than the kids themselves and their families. That's it. That's it. I don't want anything about their choices. I just want to celebrate that they worked hard to get to this point. They're saddened. They had a great attitude. They showed back up on campus to a packed stadium. Um, they, they walked organically onto the field and they shared a moment together. That's it. I want to celebrate the kids. No doubt about that. I mean, college baseball is such a beautiful thing. And when weird things happen, tough things happen, these guys will ultimately be okay at the end of the day. They, they gave us a lot to root for and cheer for. And, and we're, I think, the darlings of this, of this uh, postseason. Really quickly before we rock and roll, collegebaseballhall.org. If you want to check out the United Champions and on Twitter at College Diamonds to keep up with all the information. Mike Gustafson, president and CEO, literally wouldn't be able to do this without him. I know we're such a huge fan of his and he is of ours. So I just want to thank him so much for all his help and patience and the opportunity to do it. Really cool. Very, very cool. And who knows, maybe someday uh, being inspired by, by Mike and, and the work that they've done, maybe someday there'll be a perfect game hall of fame for the great Ooh. amateurs that have come through and made it uh, that might not be a bad idea. Anyway, I think folks are supposed to what like and subscribe and share and, and, and Twitter this. Is that what they're supposed Please to do? Definitely Twitter it. Please subscribe to it. Rate it, review it, share it, and Twitter it, most importantly. And make sure you Facebook it as well. That's it. <laughs>